beloved congregation of the Lord in our series through this parable of the wedding banquet, we have come to that portion of the parable which especially sets forth the calling of the Gentiles. In this parable where the gospel of Jesus Christ is set forth as a great wedding feast in which the subjects of a kingdom were invited and commanded to partake of that great banquet. We saw how a great judgment fell upon those who refused, who had despised the servants of the king. And there we read in verse 9, the king gives an instruction to his servants, Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage. Now, as we've been seeking to unfold something of the uh, truth in this text, we have seen that this is not, as it might appear, just a plan B for the living God. There are some systems of theology that so focus on that people Israel, that nation, separated unto God under the old covenant, that they focus upon the physical, biological nation descended from Abraham and see the rejection of Christ, their Messiah, as something which forced a sort of change of plans upon uh, the living God. And so these people would argue that, well, you know, the, the Jews, they rejected the message of Jesus. And so God sort of made an adjustment, made a change of his plans and then turned unto the Gentiles until such time as they will be brought in. And where we would look just at the parable of the wedding banquet, we might be forgiven for concluding that. But as I hope we've seen, where you look at the broader teaching of the Bible, there is a very clear message that this is no plan B. It was always the purpose of God that the human family, every tribe, tongue, and nation, should be included in his plan of redemption. We saw something of that, how even from the days of Noah, there was a revelation of the gospel given to Noah's descendants and the prediction that they, in time, would be brought back into the covenant of grace. And we trace this out through many different prophecies, seeing how the Old Testament speaks with great anticipation of the days in which both Jew and Gentile would be brought into one worshiping community, the church of Jesus Christ. And so where you come to the New Testament teaching upon this, we come to see that it takes on a special significance. Indeed, it is central to the whole message of Christ and the apostles, that the Gentiles should be so called. It is uh, the, this truth, as it's found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 in particular, 
that I would draw their, your attention to now. For here, where you compare this text with that of the parable of the wedding banquet, what you see is a fuller orb picture of this glorious truth in the sacred scriptures. Look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. I wish to open up particularly those words preached unto the Gentiles in this passage, showing its centrality, centrality to the existence and mission of the new covenant church. Will you consider with me, with the Lord's help, Christ preached to the Gentiles. Christ preached to the Gentiles, and we will see the mission, the command, and the success, the mission the command, and the success. I want to trust that this uh, chapter is very familiar to each one of us. Here we have the uh, companion of the Apostle Paul, Timothy. And he is tasked as an evangelist, that is, a special minister of the gospel under the authority of an apostle who was called upon in those early days of the church to ordain other men for the ministry and basically to establish apostolic authority, teaching, order, and doctrine in all the churches. In that sense, the office of evangelist has ceased. It no longer exists for it sort of came and went with that first generation of the apostles who are called by Jesus Christ to establish the sound basis of the new covenant church. And since there is no longer apostles, so also there are no longer evangelists. And yet, this chapter continues to have great significance for the qualifications here for a bishop or a minister of the gospel and for a deacon which, uh, the, which are the main point of this whole chapter, they continue to inform the life of the church today. I trust that where your, uh, your consistory has asked you to be praying for the Lord to raise up more officers for the church and the leadership of our congregation. You've been reading these qualifications and praying for wisdom that the Lord would reveal unto our church who the Lord could call to such an office. It is a convicting chapter, for it sets a very high bar of spiritual and moral qualifications of godliness in life, in home, in doctrine, in faith, for those who are called to the leadership of the church. And as you come to the end of the chapter, you see the apostle sort of circles back to the main point of everything. What it is that the church is about. What it is for. Isn't it an amazing thing that sometimes you can have churches that forget their purpose. It can take place with a Christian. A Christian can forget why he or she is on the earth. Why they live as a child of God. What their reason for living is. 
So can it be with a group of Christians, with a, a congregation of Christians, with a church? We can lose focus and lose our direction concerning why we exist. And so you see how he speaks in this way to his, his friend Timothy, his fellow laborer in the gospel. In verse 14, these things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But I t if I tarry long, thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. These two characterizations of the church of God, they are, on the one hand, the household of faith. They are a family. They call upon one heavenly father. They have one elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they greet one another with those words, brother and sister. One family, one birth by the Holy Spirit. And so it is that they bear with one another. They labor with one another. They serve with one another. They worship with one another. They are knit together as a supernatural creation. They do not just simply exist for their own sake. Indeed, a church does not exist for its own comfort and ease, for whatever they think is best. No, this family, this household, is under the direction of our Heavenly Father and under our elder brother, Jesus Christ. And in that capacity, it says that we are the pillar and ground of the truth. The Church of Christ, you see, exists to hold up something. A pillar is something that elevates, which holds up, which shows forth before a watching world. We hold forth the truth, the divine truth, revealed in the sacred scriptures. Those things which God is pleased to bring him the most supreme glory by, the salvation and upbuilding of the saints, the true people of God, by the truth committed unto the church, are matured in holiness. And so it is that no other institution, no government institution, no business, no human society, no, not even any family is committed with this sacred trust of bringing the truth of the gospel to the world, of showing it forth, of holding it up. And so it is that directing the whole church unto this solemn duty, he speaks in this way. He almost breaks forth in wondrous amazement at the glorious truths that the church holds up and without controversy, without disputing, Without any argument, he says, great is the mystery of godliness. A mystery of godliness. You see, these things, these truths, they tend towards godliness. Isn't it a terrible thing where you see that in the midst of so much problems, depression, and um, suicide and you know, abuse and so many social problems, poverty, 
What are people grappling for? Some kind of way of managing society, some way of controlling society. More and more people hurting, despairing, and finding no direction for their lives, and there's nowhere that people can turn. And so it is that the truth of God, the mystery of godliness, is the only thing that can direct people in their lives. The holy scriptures, as they are proclaimed, they bring people into a rightly ordered relation to their lives, to others, and to God himself. And it is mystery. Mystery for they are hidden truths to our own minds. We could never search them out or find them out through philosophy or through study of history or any other thing. They must be revealed. They must be spoken. There must be a word from heaven. Great is the mystery of godliness, he says. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Here is that mystery of godliness, the sacred truth which the church holds up. Now, some have argued, some have argued that this is an early Christian hymn, that there's something poetic and and beautiful about it. So people argue that perhaps this was a hymn that people would sing in the church. And what I would simply say about that is that while that's sometimes offered as a theory, there doesn't seem to be any evidence for it whatsoever. No, there's no evidence that this was an early Christian hymn in verse 16. Others have argued that perhaps this is an early version of a creed or a confession. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we read the Apostles' Creed. We confess our faith to remind ourselves of the central truths of the gospel. And it does seem that this verse has something of that character. Whether or not this was a common um, creed or confession, it certainly is the case that Paul here is giving something of a creed or a confession, whether directed by the Holy Spirit or repeating what was commonly testified to the church. We do see that the summary here is of those central truths that must be believed by every Christian. And really what you see is that there's sort of two couplets here. You could say that there's, uh, or rather three couplets, three pairs of expressions or doctrines that kind of go together. So first you have, God was manifest in the flesh and justified by the spirit. Flesh, spirit. He was seen of angels and preached unto Gentiles. Angels, Gentiles. And then believed on in the world and received up into glory. There's sort of a a progression, right? Christ's humiliation and his exaltation. The ministry to angels and to Gentiles and in the world and then in glory. You see how Paul is covering all his bases here. Something of the person of Christ Jesus in his magnificence is set forth. I won't exhaustively speak of everything here, but just very briefly, God was manifest in the flesh. We spoke something of that in the morning, didn't we? How the mystery of the incarnation, God is joined to humanity, flesh, not 
through confusion of the two natures, but through union of the two natures in one person, Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, and thereby manifesting the glory of the Godhead in his person. You see how it speaks there of his being justified in the spirit, seemingly referring in a way to his resurrection from the dead. For as he's risen from the dead, God is verifying that his death upon the cross was received of him as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. God was saying in the resurrection, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's the sense that in Romans chapter 1, it says concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. And there we come to the second couplet, which I especially would direct our attention. Scene of angels preached unto Gentiles. The angels, of course, witnessed Christ's resurrection. They were there when the stone was rolled away, when the women came to investigate and found the tomb empty. The angels, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, they, they eagerly desired to look into the truths of Christ in the days when they were prophesied, and so they were eagerly looking into these things as he accomplished this salvation. But there we come into these words, preached unto Gentiles, preached unto Gentiles. Does that seem a bit anticlimactic that it would come to this? The preaching of the Gentiles as some sort of mystery, as some sort of sacred truth? Is it not a rather ordinary thing that the gospel should be preached? Well, maybe you would say, well, it would be one thing if I could witness that, that glorious person, Jesus Christ, in the days of his ministry. It would be one thing if I could see his resurrection from the dead. It would be one thing if I could see those angels appearing to witness this as well. That would all be spectacular. But the preaching of the gospel unto Gentiles, how is that so special? Well, Paul does not think so. He reckons this as part of a mystery, part of a sacred truth. He speaks about it with wonder in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He speaks but in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, uh, given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among 
the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. This great truth that as the gospel goes out, as it goes out not only unto the Jews, but also unto the Gentiles, Paul is filled with wonder at it. There the prophecies are being fulfilled. There the word of God is being carried out. There indeed God is at work. More than that, Christ is at work. Christ in his glorious Works. This was not the least of them. Not only that he should die and that he should suffer, that he should rise again, but that he would ensure that this message of the gospel goes forth. And by means of this mighty gospel, sinners would be saved. Listen to what John Calvin says. All these statements are wonderful and astonishing. That God designed to bestow on the Gentiles who had hitherto wandered in the blindness of their minds a revelation of his son, which had been unknown even to the angels in heaven. When the apostle says that he was seen of angels, he means that the sight was such as drew the attention of angels, both by its novelty and by its excellence. It was above all things astonishing that God made the Gentiles who were heathens And the angels who held uninterrupted possession of his kingdom to be equally partakers of the same revelation. By this great efficacy of the preaching of the gospel, no ordinary miracle. When Christ, overcoming all obstacles, subdued to the obedience of faith, those who seemed to be altogether incapable of being tamed, certainly nothing appeared to be less probable So completely was every entrance closed and shut up, yet faith vanquished by an incredible kind of victory. The teaching of the Bible is this, that the preaching of the gospel comes not only in word, but in power. That this is the means of bringing sinners of the Gentile nations into his kingdom of glory. It is this means that he brings glory unto his most holy name, not through anything devised by the strength or intelligence of men, not through worldly wisdom or fancy strategies, but through the preaching of the gospel. Shall those who are children of the devil become the sons and daughters of God. And in this, do we not see that it is fully continuous, fully compatible with the great heart of our Savior? What is it that strikes you where you see the person and work of our Savior? It is it not this, that his love burns for the salvation of souls? Is it not this, that his heart is moved and stirred by the sorry plight of sinners languishing in death and darkness, headed for eternal destruction? We see it in his earthly ministry there in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them 
because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore to the Lord of the harvest that he may send forth laborers into his harvest. Oh, dear Christian, I would just ask you today, is this also what is on your heart? When you contemplate the terrible condition of the lost, where you would interact with co-workers, with family members, with friends who are slaves unto the devil, does not also your heart burn with yearning that they should be saved? How utterly incompatible is it with the faith in Christ Jesus that we should not have this heart? How utterly incongruous and incompatible with the heart of our Master Jesus Christ is a Christian who does not yearn for the salvation of souls. If we indeed do not have a heart for the lost, And we have much to be feared that we are still strangers unto the true Jesus Christ. He looks at the lost not as those who can be dismissed or ignored, but as sheep having no shepherd. And he thought that not only of the Jews in the days of his ministry. He says in John chapter 10 and verse 16, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. He spoke this of the Gentiles, that not only unto the Jews, but unto all nations, unto all Gentiles, they should be brought into one fold through the hearing of his voice, the sheep know their shepherd. They know the sound of his voice. And so as the voice of the shepherd goes forth through the preaching of the word, so also he is pleased to gather them into his sheepfold. It is this that he especially prayed for, wasn't it? He prayed for the conversion and the gathering of the Gentiles. In his high priestly prayer, John 17 and verse 9, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, he says to his father. Those whom you, father, have given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Verse 19 And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified through the truth. Neither I pray for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Not just for the apostles, his disciples, but for all who would believe through their word. Even as he nears his death, as he is standing before Pontius Pilate, who proudly asks, are you truly a king, Jesus? Jesus says, you speak the truth. And in John 18, verse 37, to this end was I born, 
And for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. What we must understand from this congregation is that the mission of Christ is the salvation of souls. It is through this means that his Father will be glorified. It will be through this means that his heart's desire will be satisfied. It is through this means that the Lamb who is slain will receive the reward of his sufferings. And so it is, as the Apostle Paul writes unto the church and through Timothy unto all churches, as we are called to be those who will hold up the truth of Christ, as those who stand firm according to the mystery of godliness, we cannot forget this, that his mission is to be preached unto the Gentiles. Sometimes I wonder, would this almost be an improvement over some of our creeds and confessions? Yes, they hold forth the truth to be believed, but also we must understand that if we claim to believe it, but then do not proclaim it, something is missing. And without mis- controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, yes, but also preached unto the Gentiles. I wish to show you as well that this is not only a mission, but a command, a, a command. The word here for preached has the idea of the authoritative proclamation of the, of the word by those who are sent. Those who run and speak without being sent of the Lord. Well, in this official sense, they are, are not included in this verse. It is those who in obedience to the command of Christ to carry this gospel unto those needy, perishing Gentiles that are especially conveyed here. You see, it is this that we must understand in particular, that the command given that the gospel should be preached was not just for the first generation of Christians. It is not just for particular kinds of Christian churches. No, it is an abiding expression of the will of our Savior and Lord. Beloved congregation, Christ Jesus commands that his gospel be preached also to the Gentile nations today. I wish to show forth some of the examples of which this is commanded, and you'll notice that the the one I do not cite will be uh, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. And The reason for that is that I hope, Lord willing, to preach another sermon, particularly on that passage in which I hope to apply some of the ways in which this is carried out practically through that passage. But for now, I just want to cite three examples where Christ commanded the preaching of the gospel, that it would be especially instilled in us that this is not negotiable, this is not optional, no, that this gospel must go forth unto the Gentiles. Look with me in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Here in John chapter 20 and verse 21, we have that episode in which the risen Christ appears unto his disciples. He suddenly appears there in the room where they are hiding. And 
There we find in John chapter 20 and verse 21. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. For whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Well, what a striking thing. There is a parallel here. There is the mission of Christ unto sinners. The mission whereby Christ was manifested in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit. He was seen of angels. That mission for the salvation of souls also has a parallel He sends us as the Father has sent him. He sends his church to carry out this great work and mission. And so that through his power, through his spirit being breathed forth on his church, Christ is yet at work. Where would we find the will and the mouth of Christ today? Well, we would find it in his church Among her officers, yes, her ministers, but also among all Christians who, as they have opportunity to speak the gospel, they do so not on their own authority, but as it is according to the scriptures on the authority of Christ himself. Notice how he puts it. Whosoever sins you forgive or remit, they are forgiven. Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. As the gospel is preached, there is a binding of the conscience. So we proclaim that those who believe in Christ, those who trust in his blood, those who find refuge in his name, they are truly forgiven. And all those who reject this word yet remain in their sins. Very close is the parallel passage in Mark, Mark's gospel, chapter 16. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 14, we read these words. And afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and embraided them that their unbelief with their unbelief, sorry, embraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. So the context here is Christ having to unbraid and scold his church for their unbelief. So also must he do in every generation. We are so slow to really believe the word of God. And then listen to what he says in verse 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. Is it not clear that the scope of this mission is as broad as you can imagine? Every creature, that is, every human being is to receive this. We're not to distinguish and say, well, these people are more to my liking or these people are, are easier to witness to or, or these people seem to be especially um, those who are worthy of the gospel. They're indeed 
can be a time where the Lord would call you to a special work and, and people can indeed refuse the gospel so as to leave themselves in sin and despair and in damnation. But the calling does not exclude anyone in itself. It goes out indiscriminately. It goes out seriously with urgency and with authority. Whosoever shall believe shall be saved. Whosoever shall believe not shall be damned. So it is that our calling is not to find who it is may be numbered among God's chosen ones. God indeed does have a plan for who shall be saved. But rather our calling is this, to be faithful in proclaiming the word and trusting that God will use the power of his spirit to call those who are his. Look in this third and last example, Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. Again, reading this morning in the first chapter of Luke. Now I bring you to the last chapter of Luke. Luke 24 in verse 46. The words of Jesus. And said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. You see, congregation, where the Lord has caused us to be his witnesses, where we have seen and beheld his glory, we cannot keep silent. Oh, isn't it the case that where the Lord has dealt with you, where he has rescued you from the stench of your sin and from the despair of your past life, you cannot keep silent. Oh, indeed, it may be that, that you do not feel confident with your words, that you do not feel you can give a good accounting of everything that is in the Bible or every possible objection that may surface. But you know this, you cannot be silent about him. You cannot but speak of the one who has saved you, the one who has loved you, the one who has rescued you. For we know that he is worthy that you should speak. Sometimes we can be perfectionists and imagine, oh, if I cannot give a perfect witness unto Christ, I must be silent. No, dear one. Do we imagine if Christ needed perfect witnesses, he would have called sinners like you and I? No. He desires that his unsearchable wisdom, power, might should be manifested through the weak things of this world through the foolish in themselves, through those who have no might or strength in themselves. But as we share the gospel to the lost, that is what God will use to save his people. We sometimes do fall so short of what our forefathers confessed in these matters. Yes, we, we believe that the Bible is what gives faith. Yes, we, we speak about it. But then when the hour comes to actually speak to a lost person, sometimes we waver and say, can it really be so that this will make any difference whatsoever? We see the hardness and we see the coldness. We see the opposition. We see the scorn. We feel in ourselves that we will be made fools of that we will be mocked about the most beautiful and glorious things imaginable. 
And yet we go back to what even our Reformed Fathers confessed in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What are the ordinary and outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption? Answer the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. How is the word made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching, especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and bringing them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. It is the word of God which begins this glorious work in the soul. It is the word of God which perfects this glorious work in the soul. It is in the word of God. Nothing else is necessary. The word of God is a fire to consume unbelief. The word of God is a hammer to smash unbelief. The word of God is a sword to pierce and to shred unbelief. The word of God, as the Holy Spirit blesses it unto the salvation of sinners, is what is necessary. It is what is sufficient. Nothing else If you can speak John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If you would but speak that unto a lost person, then it is not just you who speak, but God speaks through you. A very messenger from heaven has come unto their soul and has summoned them with divine authority. Do not imagine that that is a weak thing. See it for what it is in truth. Christ carrying out his will to gather his people. But I would speak to you a word about success. We've spoken about the mission and we've spoken about the command. But I wish to speak about the success. For in this passage, you notice it doesn't just end at the preaching Of Christ to the Gentiles. No, in verse 16, we see great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Believed on in the world. The the word of God does not return unto him void. What is the evidence for it? Well, consider this whole passage. Timothy is speaking of the household of God, of elders and of deacons. He's speaking of members of the church, men and women, husbands and wives. He's speaking of congregations. He's speaking of those who will hold up the truth as as the pillar and ground of the truth. He's speaking of those who receive and delight in the word of God, the church of Jesus Christ. The fact that she still exists upon the earth is the sure testimony that God is faithful to his promise were there not a true church upon the earth the promise of God would be to none effect but we yet endure the true believers in Christ Jesus called with a holy calling testifying to the one who has so loved us yes with weakness frailty doubting fears and temptations 
And yet you, Christian, are an abiding testimony of his love and grace to save sinners. You yourself are his trophy of grace, dear one. Where you may find yourself so weak and inadequate in yourself, everything you do for his kingdom is precious in his sight. You yourself are the weak means in which he will bring to ruin the foolishness of this present evil age. So it is that it must continue. It must go on. There are more who yet will be gathered. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. How then shall they call upon whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Uh, the gospel is yet preached in this city is a blessing. Though people may not recognize it or understand it, here is that beacon of light shining in the darkness where people may see a Christian knocking on their door on a Saturday morning or preaching on the side of the road on a Friday afternoon or approaching them in the workplace or sending an email or a phone call to testify of the grace of Christ in however weak way we can find possible, these things are the very means that can bring them from the path of destruction unto the path of light. And over and above it all, what do we see? We see those final words received up into glory. Christ Jesus at the right hand of the, of the Father, the bestower of all spiritual gifts and blessings, the one from whom we receive power and the one to whom we give service and worship. He perceives it all. He superintends all things for the church's good, even through many backslidings, even through many setbacks, even through much warfare against the devil and the kingdom of darkness. He is yet in glory and he preserves his church. The question therefore comes, do we believe these things, Christians? Do we believe that the word of God is still powerful? Do we believe that the Lord has his people in our community? Do we believe that we have a purpose? And that is to hold up the truths of the gospel, to be as that candlestick blazing in the darkness as the candle shines forth the light of God's grace. Sometimes we may be discouraged. Why is it that the pews are not filled? Why is it that people are not beating down the doors, desiring to hear the words of life? Why is it that this person who would stay with us for a season yet departs to some other place? And we may look for immediate results and say, why is it that this or that didn't happen as we expected? The, the question, therefore, falls unto us. Do we yet believe? Do we yet trust? Do we yet understand that the battle belongs to the Lord, that success belongs unto him, and du duty belongs unto us? Let us test our faith by this. Will we obey 
in service of our King and share the gospel with this community and this city, even where there would be no visible effects. Even if, according to this world, there would be but fools for Christ sinking away into irrelevance. Because we know that it is all worth it, all worth it for that day where we will be in the presence of the one who will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Amen.